all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 199 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Ryan Howard episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that back in the 2007 Major League Baseball season, uh, an actual gentleman from the Philadelphia Phillies by the name of Ryan Howard had a record. 199 strikeouts. So, here's to you, Ryan Howard, and with that wonderful little bit of 2007 MLB knowledge, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! Is Ryan Howard a part of the illustrious Howard family? Um, I'm going to go with no. Oh. Mainly due to his African-American heritage. Well, did you did you mention that? Was that a, I mean, I guess it would be insensitive to actually mention that, apparently. I was going to say, he's just a guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing great, Matthew. How are you doing? Um, I, I'm <laughs> I, I don't believe that you're doing great, actually. <laughs> Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. I, I, I believe someone is suffering from a bad case of the corn don'ts. <laughs> I, I love it because it makes it easy for me to name this uh, episode that. <laughs> Maybe not the Tim full the title of that. Case of the corn don'ts. Yeah. What Matt is referencing to is that I ate a corn dog, well, multiple corn dog, frozen corn dogs that apparently were not brand corn dogs. And when you do that, and if it causes some kind of stomach pain, they are called corn don'ts, and <laughs> like, is that a thing? Do people actually say that, or or is it like a, a a Matthew family word? Honestly, I literally just made it up when we're you know during the pre-show. Yes, during the pre-show. Yeah, and if you guys can't tell already, it is eight o'clock L.A. time, Pacific Standard yes. Time. It is 10 o'clock, and then, as you may or may not have heard, my wife is trying to call me. So, I'm I'm clearly prepared for this. <clears throat> like, is she calling out to you to come back to bed? Or? No, no, no. She, like, that, like, I was bad. I noticed that it was either last episode, or it was either 198 or 197. I forgot to um, uh, mute my phone. So, you guys got to hear my... Uh, my message background there, which is anger from inside out. And then just now my, the monsters university uh, theme might have just been playing because my wife literally tried to call me. Uh, Am I noticing are, a Disney theme, a Pixar theme with your phone? You may or may not know this about me that I love almost all things Disney and um, everybody really liked monsters university when it came out of course and so i totally dug the theme song and so i went and got the theme song and then cut it into a 30 second clip so i could make it into a ringtone and then assigned it to my wife and it had the unfortunate side effect of no one wanting to answer the phone whenever she calls because everybody likes to listen to the song (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, there's that. But uh, uh, and then of course with the with the inside out thing, um, I just I, I'm sorry, Lewis Black is amazing, and when and so one of the things that I wanted to do after I saw the movie was I wanted to get the San Francisco line <clears throat> put on my phone so that, you know, whenever I would get a message, I would, you would get to hear, Congratulations, San Francisco! You've ruined pizza! First the Hawaiians, and now you! So, I have that. <laughs> that is my message. That's my message indicator. And, um, so yes, that's that. So... Do you consider yourself an angry human being or a cordial human being? Uh, you know what? I, I like to be, I think I would like to be the lovable curmudgeon. The, the, the recalcitrant hero that people would not immediately ascribe as thus. Recalcitrant? That sounds like a diarrhea pill. <laughs> no, corn don'ts are diarrhea pills. <laughs> 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 but at any rate, the reason why my wife would physically be calling me this early on a Saturday morning, uh, they are heading off to San Antonio. Um, my some A couple of my cousins are going to celebrate their birthdays all at the same time, and um, that's happening. So they are off to go do the birthday party and everything, and I unfortunately... I'm not able to join them because we are, uh, recording of the show is part of it, but I also have a school project thing that, uh, that will be, uh, presented next Thursday. And this is our last get together meeting, which is today. Oh, so Matthew has the reign of the house. That's right. Bachelor That's right. Matt for Saturday. Yes. And, uh, I'm sure the girls will probably be back around five or six. Oh, it was just a day trip, I guess? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, because it's, you know, about three hours there. They'll hang out for most of the day and then come back. Um, head back probably around three or four or something like that. Yeah. I imagine. And um, that's, uh, so that's what's going on. That's my life. And your life is Walgreen corn dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so why are we recording um, for me this early in the morning? Which we haven't done in a while. I don't think we've we've had a, a record early since maybe oh, yeah. the original series. No, no. The last time we had a record early was when we got with um, the original We Are Not Here to Please You team with Raphael and R2. Oh, the Christmas episode from like two years yes. ago or so. So that would, that, that would be the last time that I can remember having to record. Because we were on German early. time. And Germans are very... Finland time. Finland time. Yes. I will only get on <laughs> at 10 p.m. No other time. Well, no, it was, I mean, it, in their defense, it was more like 4 or 5 o'clock their time, I think. I will only get on at 4 o'clock. Really, it just really sucked ass for you because it had to be 7.30 in the morning for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was 9. I remember it being like 9 or 9.30 for me. So, I mean, it had to have been 7.30 for you because that puts them, I, I want to say... He, I want to say that Raphael is five, eight eight hours ahead of me. So, yeah. So it got them to where they were coming back in. So after they they would have the time in the evening to do it, 
and we could do it in the morning and we made it work though. I had a lot of fun that day. And now if we do it again, we get to do it with Raphael and the cat who just celebrated a one year anniversary, not 100 episodes, but a one year anniversary with we are not here to please you. Congratulations again. And sorry for fucking up your promo. <laughs> <laughs> that was our way of getting back to you for having us wake up at eight or yes, seven seven forty. Yeah, two years ago, and when, when we forgot, we've yeah. it's been stirring. We it's been we've been stirring the pot as to how we were going to get back, and we were just going to screw up a promo, a twenty second promo. Yes, hey, it turned out to be like a minute twenty or something. How? Because we we babbled for like. Yes, we basically babbled for almost two minutes, and I cut it down some. We always just babble. We do. We're like, but we're like the okay. golden the girls. The sentiment was appreciated, and uh, and the kitty uh, was definitely very touched and appreciated uh, that we did that for him. So, uh, And I'm glad that we could do it. And then, of course, Raphael came through in, in the clutch and said, don't worry, we'll just reuse this in another 47 episodes. <laughs> so... Now, when he does hit 100 episodes with Raphael, then we don't have to worry about it. We're, we're already covered. Well, and speaking of 100 episodes, you, do you know the mm-hmm. significance of our next episode? Then Yes. Uh, the next episode will be our 200th episode. Wow! It's kind of crazy. Literally damn near four years. Non-stop. Non-stop, continuous content, the SLS cast. Can't stop, won't stop. Um, so. <laughs> That's racist, Matthew. What? Did you see that, that Disney got rid of the, Mo- the Moana costume? Yes, I saw, yeah. despite my diatribe to the contrary. I know. But. They were all listening to you, too. And I know it was a difficult decision, because they knew Matt from the SLS cast had it right. But Joe... Joe Corporate, <laughs> Joe Corporate wouldn't have it. He was like, "Fuck those guys." That's right. It was. It it, it would have uh, messed with their global branding and synergy and corporate synergy. You know. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are like, "What are these guys talking about?" So, it, I mean, for probably ninety five percent of you who don't listen to our show that randomly stumbled upon our show. Last week, a piece of news that I had was over the new uh, Disney movie that's coming out relatively soon, I think, the Moana. Yes, the movie Moana. Mo- yes. Moana, yeah, the uh, in The Rock plays a demigod, Maui, and they were coming out with this new Halloween costume where kids could dress up as the Maui uh, demigod, where it's like, it, it's a skin, I guess, so it's like the Hawaiian skin with the tattoos well, it's not, on it. it's actually even not that. It's actually kind of puffy and stuff, so that it could mimic um, his, his build. body style. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, his build and stuff, because obviously it's The Rock, and Maui is this, you know, big, powerful, uh, built, powerfully built guy. And so, yeah, and so naturally, and then of course he's covered in tattoos as well, so they just made the arms, chest, and legs of the actual outfit um, the same tone, skin tone, or, or as character. 
and then of course not again and it's just an outfit there there's no makeup that comes with it uh apparently there was an optional wig i guess but yeah and everybody was freaking the fuck out over it so and matt was trying so hard to to make his point clear to persuade the human populace the american human populace and i'm sorry matthew your direction was not whatever pretentious word i can't think of right now heated <laughs> uh digested well i i don't know yes yeah you tried the soapbox well it should come out again it's important to be serious every once in a while because we just make up about 85 percent of our news so that was, uh, <laughs> well, I don't, well we can't make up no i mean we we have cited sources and everything but uh no i just you know righteous indignation i think that was more <laughs> what i what i was going through at that point but you know it is what it is we, we shall we shall survive all right now that we are filled with the memories of of matt's righteous indignation would you like to check and see if there's anything in the old mail sack sure hopefully we have uh, something we do we have two somethings really actually. a pair a pair of somethings in the sack what could it be? <laughs> well, I guess we'll reach in and find out, won't we? All right. So, of course, you two can email us uh, to our at the show at slscast.com if you are so inclined. We actually have two emails from Miss Diana Weeks. Now, I uh, was almost chided yesterday on Twitter because... Diana apparently sent an email last Tuesday, and we actually have bumped up our recording day. We used to record on Mondays, and now, of course, we record on Tuesdays. And for whatever reason, Diana sent an email on Tuesday, but it did not reach us until Wednesday. I don't know if the exchange server was bad or whatever, but I did not get this until Wednesday um in the afternoon so i apologize that we did not get to cover this particular email uh for last week's episode but which would have been really cool because it was actually relevant for that so sorry about that diana i don't know what happened there but then we also have another one that is actually uh reflective of this week's episode so very timely so we're in good shape. We're all caught up, I think. So first one from Diana with the subject line, Hell or High Water. She says, Hey guys, I want to thank you for getting me to go to the theater to see Hell or High Water. I would have passed it by since the title sounded like a cheap horror flick. I especially enjoyed the repartee between the Texas Rangers. Audible laughs in the theater. Well worth the price of admission. Keep up the good work, Diana. And... Um, yeah, anytime we come across something like that, it's really good. Um, I'm just so excited to see, um, that we, you know, I, I don't know. I feel good when we can influence someone to go to the theater. So that's, that is awesome. And I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. I still maintain that Jeff Bridges is, that's probably going to be an Oscar nominated performance, I would think. All right. And then last but not least, we have the subject line, Jane Bond, no. 
And she says, Hola, film dudes. I agree with Matt that we don't need a female version of James Bond. That, that character is well established for many decades, all the way back to the books, and needs to be respected as such. That said, I could see a female James Bond type develop for the silver screen. A woman can bring her own sense of class and suave, sophisticated mystery to a spy role that stands out on its own. No need to imitate a man. Personally, I'd love to see her nail a bad guy with her spiked heel. <laughs> Happy weekend. Diana. Thank you again, Diana. And um, uh, I, I uh, want to make sure, I'm sure Tim will agree. Tim Tim also was in the camp of uh, creating a new super spy. Yeah, well. uh, don't leave me so. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, um, I, I and, and that's, and okay, so like the Spike Teal comment, all right? That is exactly what I'm talking about. We have a woman here uh, who wants to see a woman do something really cool in a in a uniquely feminine way, and that's just one of the many cool things that you could do in that kind of a uh, spy genre. So um, that and that's and that's just great. So I can't wait to see more ideas come from that, and I hope and I really do hope that we get to see a new female spy. So awesome and we don't actually have any new twitter followers to mention but if you would like to follow us on twitter you of course can do that by following us at the sls cast so i believe we are all out of email and twitter stuff to talk about so i guess now we can go to the news can we not we can then let's do it folks it's the news First up from me, from SlashFilm.com, by way of Jack Giraud. Chloe Grace Moritz drops out of live-action Little Mermaid and all her future films. Now, this does come back from the 16th of September, um, but I... Uh, we've, we've had a lot of news and stuff and a lot of in-depth talking, so I've been hanging on to this, to these uh, morsels, as it were. Chloe Grace Moritz keeps busy. Maybe not Samuel L. Jackson busy, but the 19-year-old actress is seen pretty often on the big screen. This year, she starred in Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising, and The Fifth Wave, and she has potentially two other movies coming out before 2016 wraps up. As of this moment, though, Moritz isn't attached to any future projects, including Universal's live-action reimagining of The Little Mermaid. The actress isn't taking a long hiatus from acting, but she is stepping back to re-evaluate her choices. And these are the two quotes that they have. One from The Hollywood Reporter, the other from E! News. I'm going to go ahead and combine them into one quote because they are quotes directly from her. So, quote, I pulled the plug on all my movies because I want to reassess who I am and find myself within my roles again. I'm realizing that I can slow down. It's not particularly time off. I'm just becoming more picky and particular about what roles I'm choosing. I think as an actor, you have a huge opportunity to find yourself through the roles that you choose. I think it's my time right now in my life to figure out who I am and what I am and what I want and what this industry means. Why not sit back, slow down, realize I'm 19 and go, hey, 
let's make stuff that really, really hits hard with who I am and helps me figure out what it means to be a 19-year-old actor who is just doing her thing. And all quotes there. Um, and again, the first one about I pulled the plug was from The Hollywood Reporter. The remaining quote was from E! News. Um, or at least attributed as such from the Slash Film article. So here's where I'm at on that. You know what? You got to do what you got to do. Obviously, she's been doing this kind of work for uh, several, several years now, um, which to her is pretty close to her whole life, if not half of her life. So I can see where you are getting to that point and kind of deciding where you want to take yourself uh, as you, you know, even as a career, is this something that is going to be a lifelong endeavor? Will the roles that she's going to look at choosing start putting her on a path uh, to, to maybe go behind the camera? And who knows, only time will tell. I do think, though, that it is kind of an, um, while it's kind of an interesting um, age, it's also seemingly to be kind of like an odd age, because having survived the glut of child actor issues at least as far as we can tell which is good it seems that now is the time oh my gosh i forgot to do it again there we go okay yay um but i do think that this is kind of an odd time to do that having survived childhood acting because not necessarily that you're in the, the prime of your acting life or whatever, um, but this is when really the shift can occur that would put a focus on the 20-something acting and everything that would really define that career change. I think it's a real interesting and weird time to to pull yourself away from acting because you're trying to figure out who you are and stuff. I mean, I, I get it, but I still think the timing is really weird. So what do you think, Tim? Does it matter to you? Do you care? Um, do you think this is a good, is, is a good idea, the timing? I don't know. I, I just think stuff like that is silly for anybody, especially a 19-year-old saying that they have to take a step back and reassess their life at 19. I don't know. It, it's weird. I'm not meaning to, I guess, criticize her career, but it do just doesn't, to me, seem like the type of career to where, and she doesn't seem like the type of person to where that she has to come out and do some. I know this is kind of sounding stupid, like gossipy, like gossipy bullshit. But to me, at least, it doesn't seem like she has that type of career to where she doesn't really need to do something like that. She's a fine actress. I mean, because her movies really don't appeal to me whatsoever, it doesn't take away that she is a talented young woman. But I, I don't know, it's just the idea of being 19 and having to publicly say and take action as to how, you know, what she's trying to do. Just, I don't know, it, it like, not, not weird me out, but it, it just, it, it's just strange, you know, hearing a 19 year old saying that they have to recess, reassess their life. I don't know, I guess that's really all I have to say about it. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, so I'm going to knock out two pieces of news here. I think this is kind of interesting. From avclub.com, Whataburger is very concerned about the new Wonder Woman logo. <laughs> this is written by Sam Barsanti, and it says this, For decades, Wonder Woman has selfishly defended the world of man 
from all sorts of threats, but she may soon be facing a greater challenge than ever before. No, we're not talking about the villainous Cheetah, or the alien warlord Mongol, or even the unstoppable shirtless android Amazo. We're talking about a popular fast food chain called Whataburger. As reported by the Houston Chronicle via Eater, Whataburger is in the midst of, quote, friendly trademark discussion, end quote, with DC Comics over whether or not the new Wonder Woman logo designed for the upcoming movie is too similar to Whataburger's classic Flying W, which has been in use since 1972. End all quotes there. Matt, comments, questions, concerns about the Whataburger logo being you know, I guess resembling the new Wonder Woman logo. In a way, it's valid, but I'm glad they're only considering the possibility of suing or trademark infringement and not actually, I guess, going off the rails and doing something about it. It's a very Whataburger thing to do, if I do say so. Well, I mean, okay, I'm looking, I'm actually trying to do a side-by-side comparison here. I mean, I guess, I guess I can kind of see it. It's because the tits of the W are similar. Uh, no, I mean, I get it. I mean, I, I can kind of see it, but honestly, I wouldn't have thought of it without them pointing it out. So maybe that's why they're only considering it. However, these are usually the kinds of things that can be worked out behind the scenes really quiet. Like, uh, um, I mean, I suppose if Wonder, you know, if DC Comics wants to get all functified with it, they can say that Wonder Woman might be older than Whataburger or so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's definitely weird. Also, it seems that the first two, uh, that both of our first stories here, uh, seem to be in the, in the camps of probably doesn't matter as much as it should. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or at least as much as we're making a big deal out of it. It's because uh, we like Whataburger and we right. want free Whataburger. Ooh, I would love free Whataburger. And then I'm just going to jump into director Curtis Hansen passed away. This is via TMZ.com, always a reliable entertainment website. <laughs> and it says this. Uh, oh, and it's written by somebody. And it says this. Oscar-winning director and writer Curtis Hansen died at his home in the Hollywood Hills Tuesday afternoon. Law enforcement sources tell us paramedics went to the home responding to a call of the unconscious man. We're told Hansen was pronounced dead at the scene, and it appears to have been a heart attack. Hansen won an Oscar in 1998 for his L.A. Confidential screenplay, which he also directed. He famously directed Eminem's Hollywood debut in 8 Mile, as well as The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, The River Wild, and In Her Shoes. Hansen was 71. And finally here for my first round of news is from the AV Club yet again. And I find this one particularly interesting. Idiocracy is returning to theaters just in time for the live version. This is written by Dennis DeClaudio and it says this. When Idiocracy was released in 2006, it didn't make much of an impact upon the world. In fact, most people didn't even know it existed. 20th Century Fox had a contractual obligation to release Mike Judge's follow-up to Office Space, but they pretty much just tucked it away. After being sat on for more than a year, it initially opened in just seven cities, and with particularly zero publicity. Not even so much as a trailer. Now, just one decade later, Idiocracy is practically a household term, 
which is as much a testament to the film's enduring satirical genius as it is to the country's terrifying free-for-all, which includes, among other things, a not-totally-impossible Trump presidency. And since it's hard to shiver in fear while you're laughing, the Alamo Drafthouse and Arthouse Convergence Theaters have decided to screen the film for one night only this coming October 4th. Alamo explained the decision in a press release, saying... Ten years ago, satirist Mike Judge told of an impossible future in which our collective intelligence had dropped so low it threatened to destroy the world. In this future, America was run by a corrupt, sociopathic former pro wrestler with severe anger management issues, and the most popular entertainment in the land was a YouTube-esque video playlist called Al My Balls. Flash forward to today... We are approaching the end of the most bizarre, absurdist presidential race in the U.S. history. Over the past months, thousands have questioned in social media whether Idiocracy was actually a documentary. Mike Judge's sadly persistent film has transcended its cult classic status to become a vibrant and essential facet of this election conversation. And the article goes on from there. Again, avclub.com. Idiocracy is returning to theaters just in time for the live version. And that uh, return to theaters will take place October 4th. And you guys, if you're a fan of Mike Judge, if you like Silicon Valley and all his other movies, and you have yet to see Idiocracy, at least rent it and take it, and watch it. It's a great satire. I think, I personally, I think it's very funny. And like I mentioned before, I saw the very first showing. They're at the Woodland Cinemark Theater, Friday at 10 a.m., so the first showing, and there were only like maybe three of us in that theater, and the movie was pretty much out of the theater within a week, and nobody saw it. I knew nobody who went to go see Idiocracy, and it's kind of amazing how within the past year, it's become more of a thing due to the presidency and whatnot. I've talked to a lot of people in which I know they never saw the movie before when it first came out. But they are adamant that they are diehard fans, and they've been with the movie since the very beginning. Well, maybe very beginning, as in five years ago, possibly. Matt, have you ever seen Idiocracy? Are you uh, are you familiar with the film Idiocracy? Actually, I am not. Really? Really. If, are you a fan of Terry Crews as an actor? I am. Oh. And Mike Judge. I just was... Uh, not aware of this movie, I suppose I will have to uh, check it out. You will, because Terry Crews plays uh, President Camacho, and he's a former pro wrestler, and he believes that electrolytes will uh, solve a drought crisis in that time currently happening. It's very funny. You, you almost have to... Uh, without getting... Uh, try to try to get too crazy political. You almost kind of have to, uh, not quite laugh, but you almost. I mean, you if you take a look at where uh, where we are politically in in the country, is it that hard to figure that eventually a reality TV star <laughs> and I mean, I guess business mogul more or less, kind of, sort of, uh, would would be on the ticket i mean and then also look at and if you look at the other side you know <laughs> never give up never surrender <laughs> uh pneumonia for the win anyway <sighs> okay
okay, yeah. It's, I mean, it is. It, but the whole, the, the sad part is, is that it's, I mean, it's literally turned into a joke. And that, that should be more sad than it is. So, yeah. Anyway, what else you got? Or is that all you got for now? You're up. Oh, it is? Okay. Well, okay. All right. So then that was all for now. All right. Well, this is my last piece of news. Uh, from flickeringmyth.com by way of Gary Collinson. Uh, Henry Cavill's manager confirms Man of Steel sequel. Yes! You heard that right. A sequel to Man of Steel has been rumored ever since it was announced that Zack Snyder had decided to introduce the Dark Knight into the mix for the follow-up to his 2013 franchise reboot. With a report last month suggesting that Warner Brothers was now in, quote, active development, end quote, on another Superman solo movie. Well, that report has now been confirmed by Henry Cavill's manager, Danny Garcia, who has told Newsweek that, quote, Henry has a big appetite. We've been in a five-month period of time where he's re-strategizing, acquiring property. Uh, he's filming uh, Justice League now. He's in development for the Superman standalone. He's beginning to expand that world, end quote. Um, and then, of course, there's another paragraph to the article. It's very short, but I would encourage you to please go to flickeringmyth.com. Check that out. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Uh, is this a good idea for there to be an actual standalone Man of Steel sequel? Or do you think that um, Justice League should be enough and perhaps maybe look at other ideas? It depends who's making it. Like, is it going to be Zack Snyder directing it? Doesn't say. Okay. Well, if it's somebody else taking the reins, helming it, I guess... Uh, I, I, I'd watch that, because I know you were a big fan of Man of Steel, I was not, so I, I'm totally up for something different for Superman. It's about time. That's fair enough. So. Honestly, though, I, I really would like to see, um, if nothing else, I would like to see a color palette swap, um, instead of the darker tones, actually stop dark nighting it, and then brighten it back up again. I think even that would be a really good change on it, so... Yeah. Cool. Well, that is my news, so bring us home on the news. Okay, so my last couple pieces of news here. First up, from EntertainmentWeekly.com. The Dark Tower TV series will adapt Stephen King's Wizard and Glass. And it says this. In honor... Uh, oh, and it's written by Anthony Brezniken. B-R-E-Z-N-I-C-A-N. And it says this. In honor of Stephen King's birthday, the makers of the Dark Tower film are unwrapping their plans for the saga's companion TV series. The movie, starring Idris Elba as the gunslinger Roland Deschain and Matthew McConaughey as the menacing Man in Black, opens on February 17th and explores the hero and villain's opposing quests to reach an otherworldly tower that connects their apocalyptic realm with ours. Ever since the film's project was first proposed, it came packaged with an unusual idea. A spin-off TV show that would fill in the fantasy epic's prodigious backstory. Now sources at production company MRC and the film's producer and co-screenwriter Akiva Goldsmith have revealed to EW Entertainment Weekly exclusive details about what they have planned for that series. MRC and Sony Pictures, which is releasing the film, have committed not just to financing a pilot, but a full run of between 10 and 13 episodes, depending on how the scripts and story arcs develop. 
The Dark Tower show will begin shooting in 2017 with plans to premiere in 2018, ideally around the time the film becomes available on cable or streaming services. What the producers don't yet have is a distributor. The darkness of the story rivals that of Game of Thrones, so they will require either a cable or streaming platform. MRC also makes House of Cards for Netflix, so they have a history already. But MRC is not going to wait for a partner to come aboard before moving forward. Elba has signed on to appear as Older Roland alongside Tom Taylor, 15, who plays Jake Chambers in the film. A boy from present-day New York who harbors a secret psychic power and is grappling with visions of the tower and the men and other creatures who are trying to reach it. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this? I know you are a big fan of the Dark Tower book series. Is um, the Wizard and Glass book worthy of such a long adaption? Yes, it really is. Uh, the adaptation of that book, and here's Rise, because... That particular book um, takes place when uh, when Roland is younger. Um, now I imagine they'll probably put him in. I, I want to say he's. Gosh, I want to say he's really supposed to be like sixteen, seventeen, something like that. He's supposed to be really young, um, and I'm sure they'll probably make him closer to twenty. You know, whatever, like they normally do with that kind of thing. But it is so they won't have to have. They they will not have to have Idris Elba um, for, like, the whole series, right? He could just either, like, bookend things or maybe bring it in as, like, an introduction to the story or what have you. So they'll still be able to keep the movies separate from the TV series, but allow the TV series to fill in the gaps and give you an understanding as to why the movie was happening. It also works really well um, in the manner of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, and Agent Carter, that helps boost the Avengers movies. It keeps that in, it keeps it in the people's minds, keeps it fresh, um, and allows more people to be drawn in to go see the movies, which will be very good because that, um, because there's really only two, truly, there's real, there, there's only two books that you could really do this with. Um, and one of them is what's known as Wind Through the Keyhole. It is actually the, it's actually a book that was published after the original series was done, but takes place kind of like book 4.5, kind of takes place between the fourth and the fifth novels. So, um, the, you know, so, so it turns into that kind of a thing. So I think it's a good idea. I, I, I think it's a good idea all the way around because if they tried to take this movie and, do it uh, i'm sorry t take the book and do it as a movie it, it wouldn't work i don't see how it could work so yay but they're definitely gonna have to fix something <laughs> i won't say it because i don't want to spoil anything but they're gonna have to fix something in that book though and then finally, to wrap up the news via the HollywoodReporter.com, Monster Trucks. I know Matt's most anticipated movie of the year. Monster Trucks leads Viacom to take $115 million write down. This is written by Pamela McClintock. And it says this. With the November departure of interim CEO Tom Dooley drawing most of the Viacom headlines on Wednesday, some ha uh, may have missed news of a major write-down in the company's film unit for a title that is months away from hitting theaters. 
Lowering its earnings forecast of the current fiscal fourth quarter, Viacom cited, quote, a programming impairment charge of $115 million, end quote, that is, quote, related to the expected performance of an unreleased film, end quote, in addition to other factors. Sources tell The Hollywood Reporter the movie in question is Monster Trucks, the, on a side note, the most literal name for any movie, like it's literally Monsters and Trucks, Set for release on January 13th, the big-budget title has been delayed numerous times after originally being slotted to hit theaters more than a year ago. First set for release on May 29th, 2015, it was then pushed to December 25th of that year, then March 18th of this year, and eventually to next January. Monster Trucks is a 3D live-action computer-animated action comedy produced by Paramount Animation and Mary Parents Disruption Entertainment and was directed by Chris Wedge. It stars Lucas Till, Jane Levy, Amy Ryan, Rob Lowe, Danny Glover, Barry Pepper, and Holt McCallney. With an estimated production budget of $100 million plus, one source said the film was intended to be a broad audience title but turned out to be more of a kid's movie. Given Paramount's slew of box office misses this year, Jeffrey's analyst John Genetis wrote in a Wednesday report that the studio's, quote, issues, end quote, were, quote, ongoing, end quote. He added, quote, Viacom indicated there would be a write-down of 115 million bucks related to a future film that will not likely perform to expectations. End all quotes there. Are you surprised by this, Matthew? I'm sure you've seen the trailer for Monster Trucks by now. Um, I, I don't understand how they thought Not it would be. Choice, a, yeah, I know. Yes. I thought I, I'm surprised they actually thought that this movie would be a broad audience type of film. I mean, the very idea of monsters within the car. I, I, I don't know. I think from day one of production, they would have thought oh, this is going to be a child's movie. Oh yeah, it, th- this should have been a child's direct-to-video movie <laughs> there's i don't understand i think we'll just stop there i don't understand <laughs> well if we ever do worst paramount pictures movies ever again wait was it paramount did i say didn't paramount? we do paramount most recently we did but i just want to make sure oh yeah yeah it's paramount animation yeah oh uh, well paramount needs to stop animating <laughs> <laughs> and that's my news <laughs> okay well, that does bring us to the end of the news then, and we will move directly and swiftly into our bonus segment this week, which is, was it worthy? Was it worthy? Uh, was the movie worthy? Or was the performance worthy? Was anything worthy? Is there a God? I thought you actually had something for this one. I wasn't going to worry about it. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Maybe we don't. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> this time, uh, on this uh, uh, edition of Was It Worthy, we're going to be talking about Marisa Tomei's Best Supporting Actress win from the 65th Academy Awards for 1992's My Cousin Vinny. Now, uh, she was actually up against Judy Davis from Hubs- Husbands and Wives, Joan Plowright from Enchanted April, Vanessa Redgrave from Howard's End, and Miranda Richardson from Damage. Um, let me just say that overall, this was a pretty weak field, despite some pretty heavy hitters in Judy Davis and Vanessa Redgrave. Um, and I think that's what caused this win. Um, but I also think that this, 
that My Cousin Vinny is a is the kind of movie that does not win Academy Awards. Um, not that it shouldn't win necessarily, but that it's just the type of movie that doesn't win Academy Awards. And yet, this was a movie I think that really deserved. <clears throat> some kind of recognition. And I think maybe, would it have been better served if maybe it had been the, the script or the director or something like that? Um, possibly. But I think that Marissa Tomei is just, it's that, it was just that culmination of such a great movie, such a fun cast, um, a really good behind the scenes experience. And it just all came shining through in this one performance. I would say that the only person who really gave her a run for her money in this particular one would be Vanessa Redgrave for her performance as Ruth Wilcox in Howard's End, which is a, just a really stunning drama. Um, that is... Um, that I mean, it, and... It, I mean that Howard's End was nominated for like fucking everything. Best picture, it was nominated for best director, you know, lots of lots of the best actress. I mean seriously. So Howard's End is just like this, you know, powerhouse movie from 92. Um I got to be honest with you though. I mean, judging from the field, judging from the movies and stuff, Marisa Tomei really owned that character and I think that when you can truly define a character the way she did and then have that character not upstage, not steal, but define the movie as someone who would who, who can understand Joe Pesci's character and almost take on the audience's role of observing and being with Joe Pesci's character of Vinny. I think that's why she got it. And despite the fact that she definitely started stumbling thereafter and really kind of only got to make that turnaround with the wrestler, you can't, you know what? She earned it. She worked it. She, and I, I think she deserved it. I think the film, I think the film deserves some kind of special recognition and, um, and it got it in the way of this award for Best Supporting Actress. And I think that she earned it. So I will say that, yes, Marisa Tomei earned her, or she was worthy of winning the award. Open open up that uh, link I just sent you and tell me, was her Oscar dress an Illuminati dress? And, or Illuminati. There's no E at the end of Illuminati. Uh, oh, wait. Or or was that... No, uh, what, somebody... That's a, that's a Photoshop. <laughs> Someone stuck like... The hilarious the thing. Like, I thought that was real. Oh. <laughs> There's a picture of Marissa Tomei from an article. Um, and, it, and it has the Illuminati uh, sign on, on her... On, on the chest of the, uh, of the, of the dress. And... Yeah, I think that's to that's to insinuate that uh, this was done because of the powers that be in the background, not because of any talent that she might have. It's eight displayed. It's eight. I'm willing to believe anything at this point. I'm willing to believe we're actually recording an episode right now, and I'm not just sitting 
uh, in my underwear on a chair talking to myself. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I think though. Okay, I think I think the movie's good. I haven't watched it in a in a in a while, so I'm glad. I'm, regardless, I'm glad I went back and rewatched the movie. Uh, I think jo- Joe Pesci's performance is significantly better and more nuanced than hers, and I think that's what really gets me. I think Marissa Tomei is a great actress. Um, I just think her character, like, has there never been a super stereotypical Brooklyn woman played like that before in any other movie? Because the dialogue is well-written, and she performs it incredibly well. And she's, I mean, I I can see why she was nominated, but I I don't know. It's just, like, I, I really don't understand what really stood out in her performance to really make people go, oh, yes, I want that woman to win. I mean, it's a memorable performance for sure, but... Worthy of an of a of a win? I don't I don't know about that, and I guess that's just really where where I stand. I'm I'm too a little bit perplexed. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave, I totally think could have and should have probably won, because to me, I don't want to take away from the work that Marissa Tomei put into her character. It's just I I don't know. I, I it could also be because since this movie, I've seen that character played so many times before. And maybe it could be because of her portrayal and her character in My Cousin Vinny. That's why we see so many more of these characters played that way. Maybe. Felt like I've seen it before. But maybe, again, it was because of her. So, I don't know. So then not worthy? I don't think so. Interesting. Like this, I mean, for me, and I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I, I mean, Howard Zen is just a fantastic film. And... Like I said, she was one of the, uh, in my opinion, she was, uh, Vanessa Redgrave was one of the two people, like Miranda Richardson, Damage is good, and she, and Miranda Richardson did a good job in it. Uh, Joan Plowright, again, Enchant April as Mrs. Fisher, uh, Mrs. Fisher. They were good performances, very solid performances. For me, I don't even think they were really in the same category as Judy Davis, Vanessa Redgrave, and Marissa Tomei. So, for me, um, I would I would rank it Marissa Tomei, Vanessa Redgrave, Judy Davis, top three, and in that order. I, but so I mean I can certainly understand how you would feel that Vanessa Redgrave's character was better, um, it, and it, and it's certainly um, it is certainly a fair and debatable point. I I mean uh, I for me though I really think that it was I, I think that it was just. Uh, the storm, everything happened at just the right time and came through. And that's, and that's what caused the win. Not, um, I think if it had been the year before, if it had been the year after, um, then it wouldn't have had a chance. I think it's just literally sometimes you just get lucky. You end up on a, you know, greased lightning as it were. And that's what happened with my cousin's mini. I think a greased lightning. Yeah. I don't know. Can you do that I mean, impersonation? impression <laughs> i might be able to but uh i'm still suffering from morning voice so i don't have my, morning voice I don't have my upper register I, I do not have the upper register yet no i mean but for instance you could even argue i don't think successfully but i think you could argue that fred gwynn could have been nominated for best supporting actor yeah i think his role was too small i mean at the end of the day his role was too small but I mean, Fred Gwynn, uh, Fred uh, Fred Gwynn practically makes the courtroom scenes. So, I mean, good lord. I'm, I'm sorry. Did, did, 
did you say Hughes? It was just interesting how the movie was not nominated for anything else, not even writing or or, or best screenplay, which I I think it, it it had a good chance to be nominated possibly, but the only category it was nominated for was best supporting actress. It, it's just it, I don't know. It just kind of it's interesting. It's a good movie. It's well, a very here, good movie. I mean, here's the thing though. Here's why. It's because. Um, you have to look at the other movies from that year. We've got Unforgiven, Few Good Men, Howard's End, Sen of a Woman, Crying Game, um, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, ha- uh, Damage. Um, you know, you've got all of these movies that have been uh, the player, um, Chaplin. You, you've got all these movies that have been blowing up the world that year, right? Bram Stoker's Dracula, all of these movies that were nominated in various categories in various areas for respective Academy Awards, uh, you know, like Bram Stoker was for uh, uh, costume design and stuff like that, right? So where does My Cousin Vinny fit into that? You can't, you, you can't, even in screenplay, you couldn't shoehorn it in there. Um, you, you, where are you going to get best actor really i mean sure i think that i think that uh pacino good lord sorry it's on the screen in front of me here uh pesci in a comedic role sure it was a comedic role but i think he could have held up but i mean you just got too much heavy hitters i think the only place that there really was room arguably was in the best supporting actress category. And I think that's why they were, I think that's where it ended up. I mean, it literally, like I said, it's just a perfect storm of events, but for me, it worked out. I don't know. Anyways. So I say worthy. Tim says not worthy. And we would love to know what you say. Send your comments, questions, concerns, and rants to, we are not here to please you at dot blogspot <laughs> at, at, gmail. at yeah, npr.com. Yeah. All that good stuff. All right. So that does conclude our bonus segment. Due to the sheer amount of movies that we have to watch um, in October for our Halloween month and horror celebration, we will not have a bonus segment next week. So no bonus segment. Extra movies, though, for next week. And I do believe that leaves us with nothing but the movies. Is that correct? That would be correct. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the movies. And this week's movies are 31. And the 2016 remake of The Magnificent Seven. Where would you like to start, sir? Let's get the worst out of the way and do Magnificent Seven. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, comedy. Uh, poor, poor Rob Zombie. Um, he's kind of become a victim of his own success, I think. Oh, okay. Let's do thirty-one. How about why not? Let's do, let's go do let's do that. <laughs> let's go ahead and get out of the way. Yeah. All right. Thirty-one, twenty sixteen American independent horror film written and directed by Rob Zombie, and we've got an ensemble, ensemble, ensemble cast of Sherry Moon Zombie, Jeff Daniel Phillips, Lawrence Hilton, Jacobs, Meg Foster, Richard 
break Malcolm McDowell, Judy Geeson, and Jane Carr. Now, here is the thing with Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie, um, in in his quest to be the kind of feature film director that he has wanted to be, has almost turned I, I and i say almost because it's not complete at least not yet i think another one of these and it will be he has almost turned into a caricature of himself and what is expected of the rob zombie brand and persona to the point where you're left with tired unimaginative attempted gross out scary horror movies that make up 31 <sighs> This is this movie takes place in uh, the late seventies, and it's a group of carnival workers. They're going through an RV. Uh, the RV gets attacked, and the survivors end up being stuck in this house of horrors, and they have to try and escape. It's basically the movie. They've given twelve hours, though nobody thinks that they're actually going to make it. Um, it this movie. It's Rob Zombie's got a lot of great ideas. It's just, I think that his ideas have run, have have exceeded his filmmaking ability, I think, at this point. Because these original ideas, and I, and granted, they're independent, they're low, they're, they're very low budget. This movie has a budget reportedly of about 1.5 million. So, I mean, I understand that it's not going for high-end cinema stuff, but at the same time, He's done really good work in the past, and he's done, even when it hasn't been the best work, like House of a Thousand Corpses, it's been inventive. And it's just that all of this stuff that he's doing now is not good. It, it, it's, it's just completely passe at this point, as best as I can say. The, the characters are always the same style of characters, regardless of the time that it's set in. The horrors are meant to be more an assault on the senses, which works to a certain degree. But when you're left with that, when you're left with all of it just being, I don't understand and it's grossing me out and it's freaky and, and that's what makes it scary, that uncomfortableness, you have to have more than that. Especially, like, if this was this person, if this was Rob Zombie's first film, uh, and it was 10, 12 years ago, I think it would have been better received. Um, and I understand that, that sites, that big horror sites, uh, like Bloody Disgusting and stuff, they're really into the, to the movie. But that's their bread and butter. I think that beyond the hardcore horror for horror's sake cinema fan, this is this just isn't going to appeal to anyone. It's not that it's terrible. It's just that it's all been done. It's unimaginative at this point. And the acting's not very good. I just I felt like I just felt like it was a swing and a miss. Uh two stars. Two stars. What do you got there, Tim? The only Rob Zombie movie I enjoyed or I have enjoyed is the one that I think is is technically supposed to be his absolute worst. <laughs> which is his very first directorial film, or movie, uh, I guess his directorial debut is the right way to say that, A House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, I, I think to me that was 
B movie or C movie trash done well. Um, I, I'm saying that now, not watching it for a good eight years or so. I think that was the last time I watched it. And I remember I thoroughly enjoyed it. Even The Devil's Rejects, which I'm surprised that Roger Ebert even thoroughly enjoyed The Devil's Rejects. Um, that one even didn't get universal acclaim, but that's supposed to be technically his best. 31, I know what he was striving for, but uh, it it I, like the movie just really needs to be fun and not trying to be as over the top as it is. I thought the movie could have been wackier, um, especially with the Malcolm McDowell character. Malcolm McDowell plays the, uh, I, I guess the ring, the ringleader of the House of Horrors, and they're like the very, I, I guess, would you say, aristocratic people who run the show. They're all wearing the pompous, uh, uh, white English the powdered wigs, yeah, the powdered yeah, the wigs, powdered and they're wigs, wearing the Elizabethan makeup and. They're all like, oh, yes, I bet this much money, five million on the black guy for winning this. And after every time somebody takes down uh, one of the clowns, which, uh, were, were they really clowns? I mean, they're not your stereotypical clowns, um, which kind of makes me wonder if that, that woods gag, wherein, what was it, North Carolina or Georgia, the creepy clowns were in the woods luring kids in with money? and candy if that was really yeah, a marketing sure. ploy for this movie because there were no cl i mean other than the nazi midget clown guy nobody else was really oh i guess the twin chainsaw dudes were mainly the more the most clowny of the bunch but there were no stereotypical pennywise you know esque type of clowns in the film and uh, so the aristocratic people, you know, Mark, uh, Malcolm McDowell and the two ladies, they're, you know, they're kind of uh, betting who will win, who, who could win. And after everybody gets killed or after each clown gets killed, they wager uh, the odds, you know, and they do an announcement. Oh, so and so you your odds of living are 300 to one. And as they go down the line and revealing the odds, that's supposed to be comical. And it really isn't. I mean, really, the entire movie is pretty pretentious in the writing. You're forced to care about these characters, um, especially since all, all the good guys are significantly older. I mean, I think all of them have got to be in their 40s. I, I don't think anybody is under the age of 40 in in this movie, I feel pretty certain of saying, um, which is totally fine, but they're all acting like a teenager. You go in to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, or, or mainly Texas Chainsaw Massacre, since that's mainly about uh, kids on the open road in the middle of nowhere, uh, in, in, in the deserty rural landscape of Texas or Oklahoma or Tennessee or whatever, and they, uh, you know, they happen upon the madcap horror mayhem. Well, the same type of thing happens with these people. You know, it looks like they're in the they're in their forties. It takes place in the late seventies, and they're they're in a they're in a van. You know, heading across country, and and all this shit happens to them. But they're they're all acting like they're they're teenagers, and it just I mean, it's fine. But for that time period, it just seemed a little off-kilter for me. Like, I really didn't understand why they were doing this, why they're just older, horn dog, 
um, um, ruffians, I guess. And, and I just didn't care. And the movie is set up for you to care about these people, for you to root for them, for you to um, not want them to die. And yet when they eventually do one by one, and I'm not going to say who who um, makes it or who doesn't make it specifically, but I, I mean, it's set up for you to care. And really, at least I did not. Um but the movie could have the movie has like this darker tone to it at times and i thought it could have been wackier and more fun and that's where i think that this movie fails the most is that it's just not fun um let's see yeah and apparently to make the the main clown bad guy evil <laughs> like the, his name is doomhead and possibly the best character in the movie i don't i don't remember the guy's the actor's name but i've seen him around um, his character is Doomhead, but what makes Doomhead so frightening? It's because apparently he likes to bang fat chicks while watching the movie Nosferatu. <laughs> and, and that's how he's really introduced later on in the movie. He's banging this woman, and he's like really getting into Nosferatu, and that's how he gets off, and that's supposed to make him evil, and this is how he's introduced by Malcolm McDowell. Shall shall we bring him Doomhead? Shall we bring in Doomhead to take out these people? Because apparently nobody can take out these white people but Doomhead. And it says, and then so it's building up Doomhead, like, who is this guy? He's evil, you know, he's like this tough clown killer dude, and he's just, like, banging a chick and watching an old silent black and white movie and, like, really getting into it. And it's just kind of, it's just weird and pointless. Um, but I guess a, a spoiler, the, the, uh, the best part of the movie, in my opinion, if you make it through the whole movie, which I think in some way, if you're a fan of B-movies and Rob Zombie films, then I think you will find mild enjoyment in it. And to be perfectly honest, I found mild enjoyment in the movie, though I particularly didn't like it. Rob Zombie has the a, a good a night uh, has the capability of really driving a film home or driving an emotion home, and I thought the last. Five ten minutes of the film was incredibly well done. I thought the music choices and how the movie wrapped up was nicely uh, produced. Um, I don't want to say why and how they go about doing this, because I really don't want to go into a whole spoiler section for this movie, because I really don't think it's necessarily worth it. But I, I do think, again, if you are... Um, a fan of his, you might find some enjoyment in it. And, and again, there, there are moments like the end peppered throughout... Um, but the movie, in my opinion, is just not wacky enough, fun enough, and nor is it brutal enough for it to warrant, uh, 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 you know, a great B, C, or D movie pleasure. So I give this one two and a half out of five. There you go. Two and a half out of five. Well, fair enough. Okay, so, <laughs> um... Let's see here. Then that leaves us with The Magnificent Seven, the 2016 American Western action film directed by Antoine Fuqua. Uh, and it stars Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, Byung-Hun Lee, Manuel Garcia Ruflo, uh, Martin Sensmeyer, and Haley Bennett, along with Peter Sarsgaard. 
All right, so we've got the evil, corrupt robber baron Bartholomew Bogue, played by Peter Sarsgaard, who is basically just tearing apart this little town and killing people left and right and burning churches. And uh, these people are just desperate and don't know what else to do. And this young lady who's lost her husband, um, who was actually the uh, lead uh, from the USA TV series uh, White Collar, she she goes in search of anyone who will help her avenge her husband. And, of course, save this town. Enter Denzel Washington, who plays Sam Chisholm, and uh, who is a man who's a duly sworn lawman and a step deputy in, you know, seven other states, you know, Kansas and seven other states, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he assembles a team. And this team is the Magnificent Seven. Let's go save the town. All right. Now, um, I actually had to go back. Um, I met um, a very, very nice deputy um, after I watched the movie. He was doing the security at the uh, at the theater when I went and saw it the other night. And we just kind of ended up striking up a conversation about it. And he was like, he said that he thought this movie, this version, was better than the original. And now I would like to say that this gentleman was late forties uh, at at the very at, you know at the at the very least. So I was like, how can you say that? I mean, I know that you've seen the you know original. You grew up with it just like I did. And he's like, I'm telling you, it's just it's slower. It's just not. It, there's a lot more dialogue and everything. So I was like, okay, that's it. I have to go back and watch the original and oh my god he was right the original is still a classic of western cinema that um is that will always be beloved and should be for its achievements it's a great movie you'll never have a sad time watching that movie but it is slower it's a it's a lot more dialogue heavy and i think it's just a result of how they were how they made movies then but even still you come back to this version Oh my God! They, they, everything is just so ridiculously tightened up. This movie is absolutely outstanding. It is so much fun, and it, what it does is it takes all the best parts of the original movie, including things that that I don't want to say are taken granted for today or taken for granted today because we've moved on from them, but it takes the ideas from the original things like the the good guys never miss like never and they and 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 it plays on that it takes aspects of uh the old of, of basically you know all the misfits coming together and they don't like each other but they grow to like each other um there's things that are just completely obvious the amazing music i mean good lord i such a great blend of the original score with new with with 2016 sensibilities it's it's like they took the movie from 1960 and gave it a 2016 sensibility remake they hit all of the great highlights but still put all of the action and the acting together with great characters coming out of chris pratt vincent d'onofrio holy crap just super fun. I want to be like him when I grow up. 
you know, that's all I can say. Um, and then, and yet they still try to remember that these are, for the most part, bad guys with pasts. And they, and they take time, but not too much time to explore that. That, that would be definitely with Ethan Hawke's Mr. Goodnight, Robichaux, um, for example. And so it, they, they have all that fun. They do these things and then they just don't stop with the action. It's fantastic. They kept the pacing up throughout. Now, there's only two really big problems with this movie. Oh, and I'm sorry. I forgot. Let me please mention Peter Sarsgaard. What a fantastic bad guy. He really did do a great job as the bad guy. Um, there's only two things that really bothered me with this film and when I was just like, oh man, I'm I'm really glad that I had uh, that I've had two days to reflect on the movie and everything, because I initially was going to give this. I was texting Tim. I was like, oh my god, oh, this five star. Da, da, da. And I've had some time to back down to to think about it because there are a couple of issues with the movie. One of the issues is in certain aspects of the background dialogue and certain aspects of the characterizations. It's one thing to be over the top. And it's one thing to have somebody who is so completely over the top that it contrasts everyone else to bring them into bear. But there's even times when you can push that, push that too far. And they do it in two different characters. They do it in Goodnight Robichaux played by Ethan Hawke, and they do it in Jack Horn, which is played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, and I felt like with what they, how they develop Goodnight's character, um, it was really kind of more of a plot device. And it's still good. It's still okay. But I think that when you've done so much, so great, so uh, you've done so many good things, and you've executed them so well, I think that a little bit of a writing shift, a little bit of a dialogue shift, could have made his characterization much better. Um, and then the other side is Vincent D'Onofrio. And he was completely over... I think he was just completely overblown. Um, and and while a lot of the times it's funny and a lot of the times you can see where it's at and why it's there, there are also several instances where it's just kind of like, eh, it felt a little bit like it was unnecessary. The other thing pardon me, is that the ending really kind of, like, the very, 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 very last ending frames of the movie really kind of pissed me off. And I'm not going to spoil the ending in any in, in any way. I know you're like, but you just said this is the ending. Are you talking about no. the CGI? Oh my god, the CGI. <laughs> they did a Fundamentals of Caring. And I don't know why they did a Fundamentals I don't know what's going on, but they literally did the same thing as Fundamentals of you Caring. You mean apps, apps, apps after the beautiful, scenic... Uh, you know, Western scenery, the scenic Western views, you get CGI crosses. And, and a CGI town. And it's like, guys, why didn't you just do this shot <laughs> at the beginning of the movie before you burned everything? It's like, did you forget? Did you? Oh, damn it. We totally forgot. Just fucking do it in post. It's like... <laughs> Uh, you know, who had the call sheet for this day? God damn it, Bobby. You had one job. I'm sorry, Mr. Fuqua. I'm sorry. So, I, but I mean, 
I just, oh god, that really pissed me off because it's clearly not CGI the whole time. Uh, you know, they do a really good job, and I'm not saying that there's not CGI mats and stuff that use because obviously they're going to do a lot of that wherever they can, and and um and, and of course you're not going to be able to notice that stuff, which is great. But there's a lot of practical effects too, which I love and everything like that. But I mean, it's just so blatantly obvious that somebody. <laughs> I was just like, really. Um. That that really that really irritated me. Um, so at the end of the day, I give this one four point seven five out of five. Very very nearly would have been a five star movie, but I think some of the over the topness um, and, and a little bit of the characterization hurt, especially where they're using certain characters as more of a kind of a plot device um, that could have been explained away with a little bit better writing. That I think would have. Um, maintained the integrity of the characters and then goddamn that last 15 seconds <laughs> well actually 15 20. no it's uh it's like a full-on like minute of is it is does it really take that yeah long? well at least it felt it like it because like because the, the movie exactly. is beautiful i mean it's shot incredibly well and oh yeah, yeah. and and uh, honestly it's i mean the shell of it is is totally a western Though I think by the last uh, fight scene, it kind of gets it turns a li- it gets a little too much uh, into modern act goes a little too much into modern action territory for my taste. But the movie is a very entertaining western, and in minus the last minute or minute and a half or however long <laughs> it is, um, it, it's it's a beautiful, uh, flawless, uh, f- flawlessly shot film. Uh, technically, I think I thought the town was cool. Um, the, the movie visually had the, had the best, uh, ha- had the right amounts of modern or, or, or Western vibes to it. Um, as well as the dialogue, even the dialogue was very, uh, well done. It wasn't cause you watch a lot of modern day Westerns and it's just too faithful to how people spoke at the time, which is fine. Depending on the movie was fine, but this one, they kind of modernized the dialogue a little bit to where, it's not too modern, but they can make jokes that, you know, that that fit into nowadays culture, I guess. And that's good and bad. Uh, personally, I didn't care too much for Chris Pratt's character. I just thought it was too much of a Chris Pratt character, um, I, I, I guess. And I really wanted something a little bit more genuine and nuanced. And the movie is, is very much nuanced. Um and I, I think to me that was my big issue. I didn't really care for Vincent D'Onofrio's character all that much. To me, I thought it was a little too over the top. Um, if you're familiar with the original Magnificent Seven, you know that people die. Um, I really didn't care about anybody who died other than one or two characters. Um, and that was a, a big knock for me. Like, I just really didn't care for anybody except for. Um, Denzel Washington. I thought Denzel Washington was expertly cast, and I just really liked his character and how he played it. Um, and and I was surprised because I know I knew going into it, Denzel Washington wasn't even too sure about his performance, and I thought, I mean, I, I thought everybody was well cast, um, but I just thought he just nailed it spot on, like excellent leading man and an excellent choice all around. Um, but but you know like just pretty much i thought the the the, the character structure was a lot little bit um uneven 
Um, and I think my biggest knock on the movie is the editing, and especially the first five minutes of the movie, the opening. You're watching it, and they have great shots. Beautiful, symmetrical shots of Skarsgård as the villain scheming, or not scheming, but just like maniacally, I guess, walking down the aisle of the church. And just how the shot is set up symmetrically is, is incredible. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But it keeps cutting. Like, the shot never lingers for more than like a second. You know, it's probably a couple seconds, but it just feels like a second. And you don't really have to see everything center frame, you know. It's okay for things to happen off to the side, you know, and just let things play out in one shot. And it the movie doesn't really do that. And it's just, it, 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 to me, it was more frustrating than anything else. So those are really my only knocks on the movie, but they're really not that bad of knocks. I went in this movie with caution, uh, mainly because the trailers really annoyed me and bugged me, but this movie is significantly different from the trailers. They took a classic movie into where, in my opinion, is a flawless film, and they've updated it, and they've made it a little, they made the, they, they, they picked up the pace a bit. You've seen a movie like this before, it's nothing completely new, but for what it is, it is incredibly entertaining, and I give it four out of five, despite any of its flaws, it it's still it, it's it's just wildly entertaining, and that's all I'll say. So do go and see it. I think it's fun. Right on. Yeah, I I have to agree. Um, it it is just such a fantastic movie. Uh, and and again, Antoine Fuqua is. I mean, this guy has. You can do nothing but expect great things from him, I think, in the future. I mean, this, this guy going back, we did Southpaw last year. Um, and, Tim, I noticed, I, I went back and checked. You didn't enjoy it as much as I did, but it was still... It was, it was uh, good, you know. Yeah, you gave it you, you gave it a two and a half. Yeah. I gave it 3.25. Uh, Equalizer, you, for some reason, did not get a chance to see, but um, at least for the show. And I ended up giving that one a three. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's also, I mean, he started off back in 1998 with Replacement Killers, moved into Bait, then Training Day. So, I mean, this guy has definitely um, done some just amazing work. Um, not a big fan of Olympus Has Fallen, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, but you, you know what pisses me off about this movie is that hmm. a Sausage Party has like an 85% or 83% Rotten Tomatoes rating. In this movie, and even though I, I'm done with Rotten Tomatoes, I just, it, th I mean, this is the reason why Rotten Tomatoes pisses me off. Um, so, uh, Sausage Party has like an 85% Rotten Tomatoes fresh rating or whatever. This movie has a 63% Rotten Tomatoes score. And it, and it annoys the living shit out of me because this movie is far superior and, and well-crafted compared to Sausage Party. And oh yeah, absolutely. And, 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 absolutely. And, and, and it yeah. baffles my mind why people don't like this movie as much. Minus, I mean, I can see under, I can understand why people don't gravitate towards something that they've seen before many times. But it's you might have seen you've seen it before, but it's done so well that it's worthy of you know of of a little bit of praise or a good rating, in my opinion. Oh yeah, I I'm hoping uh, that this one actually comes. Um, that that this that this uh does well, um, not because 
I, I mean, I definitely don't see a return of the Magnificent Seven or Guns of the Magnificent Seven <laughs> like we got when uh, Yul Brenner was alive. But uh, I just, I really want for this to do well because, first of all, I think it is a fantastic movie. Clearly, I believe it's a fantastic movie. But secondly, um, this movie i think has a really really good chance of beginning a nice reinvigoration of the western and i think it shows that you can do it in 2016 um you can do it with 21st century sensibilities and still have a great product so um because that's the one thing if you look at it real uh, closely that's kind of the one thing that's missing from the old cinemaplex uh anymore are westerns and while, I mean, I certainly understand that, you know, things ebb and flow and we can pass into different areas and stuff, um, I, I think it's important that we note that it's good to have solid genres. And I think the Western is a genre that's worth keeping around. So, anyway. <sighs> well... I think we're at the end of the movies here. Next week's movies, we are again starting October, which means it's all time for the fun horror stuff. I know it's Tim's favorite month for movies. We are going to be doing... Last year, we decided to take an in-depth look at Nightmare on Elm Street. And this year, we've decided, well, let's do it again. What can we bring to the table in terms of dissecting for you the Friday the 13th franchise. So we're going to be knocking out the first four movies. There's like 13 freaking movies this time. Uh, but we've got Friday the 13th, 1980s Friday the 13th, the one that kicked it off. Friday the 13th Part 2, Friday the 13th Part 3, and Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And in parentheses, not, not really. <laughs> not really <laughs> those are the movies that we're going to be doing and again four movies next week which is why no bonus segment so that brings us to the end of the show and brings us to the spiel does it not sir spiel one all right well the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners cries of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both Slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Peter Sarsgaard, I get to say this. If all the circumstances of acting are made too easy, then there's no grain of sand to make the pearl. Indeed. We're also on SoundCloud, by the way. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again. Oh, yeah. Uh, Next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>